Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 86, the book of Matthew, chapter 25, continued. In our previous lesson, we ended with delving into this fascinating illuminating parable of the talents. And the most common method within Christianity and often within Messianic Judaism to, to, to study or to preach this parable is by using allegories to separate out various elements of the story and turning them into applications for our modern lives. And indeed, these are often useful tools for us. Or to say that the parable represents an absent and then a returning Jesus. Now, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, <clears throat> the term allegory means a symbolic fictional narrative that conveys a meaning that's not explicitly set forth in the narrative. It then goes on to say that this is the way that fables and parables operate. Now, what can get confusing for us is that this definition is only correct to a point, and this is so very important for us, his followers, to get right, because Christ rarely taught using parables. Now, I've spoken on this subject before. But it is crucial for Bible students to grasp and to hold closely in your studies, so it is worth repeating. Even though the Britannica correctly says that allegory and symbolism are the basic substances of parables, that definition needs to be accompanied with an asterisk. Typical parables and fables, among all the common literary, uh, common literary works of authors throughout history, indeed are well described by Britannica's definition of allegory. But biblical parables are not comprised of the same substance. Please be aware, what I'm about to tell you is not an attempt to spiritualize, if you would, Christ's parables. Rather, this is an issue of better understanding of the literary rules that Jewish writers used regarding religious matters, such as Holy Scripture, which can be different from the literary rules and meanings that non-Jewish writers used. And since the Bible is composed using those Jewish, or better, Hebrew literary rules, which changed and evolved over the centuries, then we need to understand what those rules were in Christ's era. Now, while the New Testament, while New Testament biblical illustrations may indeed form a Jewish allegory and, and symbolism, Yeshua's parables follow the typical Jewish parable formula. 
that had come into use for some unknown time, but not long, I think, before his day, and that also became heavily reflected in the writings of rabbis from Yeshua's time onward. Now, perhaps one of the most helpful tools for gospel interpretation is to recognize that there is a distinct difference between Jewish illustrations and Jewish parables, and therefore between biblical illustrations and biblical parables. These are not two terms meaning the same thing. Now, I realize this could seem like a trivial nuance, only necessary for a Bible academic to know. But in fact, it has everything to do with how to best understand and interpret Jesus' parables versus his illustrations. Therefore, the first thing we have to do is to distinguish which is which. <laughs> Jewish parables always begin, always, with an easily recognizable word formula that immediately says a comparison is about to be made. Thus, when Yeshua wants to teach, he wants to teach us about the kingdom of heaven using the literary technique of parable, he'll always begin with something like, the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven can be compared to. So when we see Christ saying that, he'll say, well, thus and so can be compared to this and that. This is a Jewish parable, literary form. And we then can know instantly that what follows has but one point, one that's going to be made. The entire narrative story of a Jewish parable is concocted in order to lead us to this single point, the one moral of the story. All of the parables, flowery elements that get us to this point are only there for the listeners to be able to draw a, a memorable mental picture. On the other hand, a Jewish illustration, as used in the Bible and therefore as used by Jesus, is presented as a series of metaphors and symbolisms, and that's how we should understand them. Therefore, we could say that illustration is the Jewish, the biblical, equivalent of allegory. See, the bottom line's this. We must not approach Christ's parables as though they were allegories, as being fables that make great use of symbolism. Because that's not how he, it's not how any Jewish religious teacher or even later rabbi would have constructed them or meant them. He was merely using the standard literary technique of parable as it was used in his day among the Jewish religious teachers. Yet it is evident there are hints 
of deeper meanings, even mysteries in his parables that we must not ignore because he was, after all, more than a run-of-the-mill Jewish religious teacher. And because the passing of time has revealed to us that some of these prophetic meanings hidden deep within his parables are beginning to take form. Passionate, even fiery debate over the meaning of Holy Scripture was and remains a favorite pastime of Jewish religious instructors and Torah scholars. It became clear to them early on in ancient times that there were levels of meaning in the Holy Scriptures that were undeniably present. And in time, those levels were given names and descriptions like Pshat, Remez, Drash, and Sod. Now, essentially, those four levels describe uh, a reasonable, a useful method for us to study and think about the meaning of Scripture from its simplest, most literal sense, then drilling all the way down to its most mysterious sense. That is, a revelation of things that can only be speculated about because it is either something about a prophetic far future event or it involves the mystifying characteristics of the divine. Characteristics that are just beyond our human ability to fully grasp or even find words to accurately describe it. Yeshua regularly used parables to make the mysterious nature of the divine and the spiritual more accessible, more understandable to humans. There, there isn't much more mysterious in this universe than God's substance, than God's characteristics, than the nature of his kingdom of heaven something that Jesus is calling us to be, become a part of. Well, with that understanding, whenever we encounter a parable of Jesus that is about introducing to us a facet of the kingdom of heaven, we know, underlying all that is said, the deeper sense of his words. It's revealing, this is important, this is important. It is revealing some characteristic or another of God and of his divine kingdom. This deeper sense of the parable of the talents is a case in point. At the same time, we must never minimize the simpler, literal sense of it that applies to our everyday life and behavior. Let's begin today, then, by rereading the parable of the talents. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, and we'll begin reading at verse 14. Matthew 25.
Matthew chapter 25. <clears throat> for it will be like a man about to leave home for a while who entrusted his possessions to his servants, to one he gave five talents, equivalent to a hundred years' wages, to another two talents, to another one talent, to each according to his ability. Then he left. Now the one who had received five talents immediately went out, invested it, and he earned another five. Similarly, the one given two earned another two, but the one given one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Well, after a long time, the master of those servants returned to settle accounts with them. <clears throat> the one who had received five talents came forward, bringing the other five and said, Sir, you gave me five talents. Here, I've made five more. And his master said to him, Excellent. You are a good and trustworthy servant. You have been faithful with a small amount. So I will put you in charge of a large amount. Come, join in your master's happiness. Also, the one who had received two came forward and said, Sir, you gave me two talents. Here, I've made two more. And his master said to him, Excellent. So you are a good and trustworthy servant. You've been faithful with a small amount, so I will put you in charge of a large amount. Come, join in your master's happiness. Now the one who had received one talent came forward and said, Oh, I knew you were a hard man. You harvest where you don't plant, you gather where you don't sow seed. I was afraid. So I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, take what belongs to you. Well, you wicked, lazy servant, said his master. So you knew, did you, that I harvest where I haven't planted and that I gather where I didn't sow seed? Well, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers so that when I returned, I would at least have gotten back interest with my capital. Take the talent from him, give it to the one who has 10. For everyone who has something will be given more so that he will have more than enough. But from anyone who has nothing, even what he does will have it taken from, taken away. Now, as for this worthless servant, <clears throat> throw him out in the dark where people will wail and grind their teeth. <clears throat> Notice how the parable, be, parable begins, for it will be like. Essentially, this parable is a continuation of the previous one about the ten virgins and their lamps. The it that this next parable speaks of remains as the kingdom of heaven. Now, without repeating all that we discussed last time, this parable talks about a wealthy man leaving and entrusting what is really an enormous sum of money, five talents, to a servant to care for, a lesser but still large sum of money, two talents to another servant, finally one talent to the last servant. And when the master returned home sometime later, and he arrived unexpectedly, the first servant had wisely invested his master's money and doubled it, as did the second servant. The third servant just simply dug a hole and buried the one talent, thereby 
not using it, not investing it, instead only preserving what he had been given. Now, the first two servants were highly praised by their master for how they handled what he entrusted them with. And as a reward, they were given even more of their master's estate to care for. But the third servant, he was severely criticized. He was called wicked and lazy. The master asks why this third servant did what he did. The servant responded that he did it out of fear. What was he afraid of? That's explained in the dialogue of verses 24 and 25 when the servant says, I knew you were a hard man. You harvest where you didn't plant, gather where you didn't sow seed. I was afraid, so I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, take what belongs to you. Now, on the simplest level, the shot, the literal level, this servant's charge against his master comes because he completely misunderstood the character and the nature of his master and therefore of his master's expectations of his servants. While the first two servants understood his character properly, so they acted accordingly. On the deeper Ramez level, the hint level, then we can understand that this same thing applies to our understanding of God's character and nature and therefore what he expects of us. If we don't truly understand who God is, then we won't know how to approach him or how to obey him or how to relate to him. Even though, just as with that third servant, we're so certain that we do. So certain of it. So what exactly makes this servant wicked and lazy in their master's eyes, and therefore in God's eyes, rather than merely disobedient or merely ignorant? We can look to the Proverbs to answer this question, Proverbs 18, 9. Whoever is lazy in doing his work is a brother to the destroyer. Proverbs 20, verse 4. A lazy person won't plow in the winter, so at harvest time, when he looks, there is nothing. Proverbs 26, 13. The lazy person says, there's a lion in the streets. A lion's roaming loose out there. In these biblical proverbs, we find out why it is inherent in this parable, at least for first century Jewish listener it was, that the master, God, would describe this third servant as both lazy and wicked. The lazy person is said to be a brother to the destroyer. That is, he's doing Satan's evil bidding. The lazy person won't plow in the winter and then is surprised 
when later there's nothing to harvest. Meaning he's short-sighted as he tries to avoid work. The lazy person says there's a lion in the streets. He operates on him fear. He harbors an assumption of, of disaster. So he avoids risk. God's character, and therefore how he expects us to behave in response to him, is as a bold doer, as a tireless worker. His character always looks ahead towards the bigger picture, and he does whatever it takes to bring his creation to full redemption and perfection. We, we as his created creatures, are to follow this example. We're to look to the longer term, the wider implications of our decisions and our actions, both in our personal decisions about our earthly lives and in how we prepare for an eternal future, hopefully as a servant and a partner in the redemption process. And finally, God doesn't fear. He goes forth resolutely and not timidly. Perhaps the command of God that is repeated the most in the scriptures is for those who trust in him to fear not. Fear not. Fear is a prison of our own making, with Satan as our jailer. Fear is a construction of our minds. Often it doesn't reflect reality. Fear causes us to retreat in life and in duty and not venture forward with confidence. Fear enables us to become passive, to hoard whatever it is we have instead of using our God-given gifts and talents to generously benefit the lives of others, to better our own lives according to His will for us. Now, <clears throat> I want to show you an important connection. And then afterwards, I'm going to explain why this is, a, is really helpful to notice. Back in Matthew chapter 13, we read this, starting at verse 1. That same day, Yeshua went out to the house and he sat down by the lake, but such a large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat there while the crowd stood on the shore. He told them many things in parables. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Other seeds fell on rocky patches where there wasn't much soil. It sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun had risen, the young plants were scorched. And since their roots weren't deep, they dried up. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Others fell into rich soil and produced grain, 160, 30 times as much as had been sown. Those who have ears, let them hear. 
Then the Talmudim, his disciples, came and asked Yeshua, Why are you speaking to them in parables? And he answered, Because it has been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but it has not been given to them. For anyone who has something will be given more, then he will have plenty, but from anyone who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. Here is why I speak to them in parables. They look without seeing and listen without hearing or understanding. So here we see the parable of the farmer sowing seeds of four kinds of soil into four kinds of soil. And afterwards, Yeshua responds to the disciples' question about why he's speaking in parables. And he tells them, for anyone who has something will be given more so that he will have plenty, but from anyone who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. This is virtually identical to Matthew 24, 29. Both the parable of the four soils and the parable of the talents make the same point. They make the same moral of the story. In other words, these disciples have heard this conclusion and instruction before. Clearly in Matthew 13, this statement had a deeper or, or spiritual meaning because it doesn't seem to have a direct earthly connection to some kind of behavior of the farmer or the seeds. But in Matthew 25, the moral of the story is directly related to the inaction of that and, and the lazy, fearful behavior of this third servant who buried the one talent that his master had entrusted to him. Yet on the remez level, at hint level, the parable of the talents has spiritual undertones to it as well. Now let's first deal with the practical side of the parable of the talents. This clearly has to do with money and investing, even though the money didn't belong to the servants. The Lord tells us we should invest our money. See, it goes without saying, that we are to always do so wisely. This parable does not get involved and do exactly what kind of investment that was made by the first two servants or the, the, the level of the risk involved. The servants knew that it was while their it was their responsibility to care for and grow their master's money. It certainly was not their money. Thus, we must always remember because God is the creator and we are his creatures, that the world and everything in it is his. Even what we call ours is ultimately his. The wisdom being dispensed here is that when the Lord determines to provide us with money, however much or little, we are to be good stewards over it. With the attitude that this money belongs to the master. In addition, we have obligations to him 
both to try to make it grow and to do it responsibly. Because then there is money and resources to help others. To make our own lives, our families' lives, our communities' lives better. This parable where the first two servants doubled their master's money takes into no account the meaning of uh, the amount of uh, pardon me the amount of time involved although the implication is that it was considerable it doesn't also consider the aggressiveness of their investment so we shouldn't look here for investment device uh, investment advice other than the fact we should invest we should do it wisely we should not just timidly sit on our money. Now, anyone who has done well in life, and this goes for people in ancient or modern times, have invested. And investment by its very nature involves levels of risk. Of course, some people were smart enough to be born into wealthy families. So they inherited well. Even so, they have an abundance due to someone else's hard work and wise investing. But even though a person gains wealth through inheritance, they are not to behave as that third servant and just hoard their fortune for fear they might lose it or out of laxness to avoid the work of investing. Rather, in imitation of God's character, they are to attempt to increase their wealth through honest, responsible investing. Just as this is not going to become a lesson in all the ways and means of financial investing, or exactly what to invest in and how, also don't think this is somehow an instruction that validates the popular prosperity doctrine. It does not. This is not about how to become rich so that we can luxuriate in our abundance. Or is it about wealth as a visible proof of the level of our faith in God, which it is not? Rather, this is as much about God's character and nature as it is about us not being afraid to take reasonable risks or refraining from making decisions based on fear in all matters of life that involves our possessions and our gifts. Now, on the Remez level, this is about the tasks that God gives us to do for the kingdom and for, and he gives us the ability to do them. You know, it's great to be saved in Christ, but sharing that salvation with others instantly becomes an obligation, not an option. Because just as with everything else, our salvation also belongs to the Lord. Our salvation is from Him, 
It's his. That sharing and investing can come in so many ways. From the generous giving of our increase in wealth to being a refreshing example in our lives of righteous living to working in ministry to the Lord, understanding that we could probably make more money elsewhere, to speaking about God's love to others, to simple acts of kindness to those who need it, it's nearly endless. Just be aware. There's no exemptions to God's expectations. If you're saved, you have been entrusted with gifts and talents given to you by the Holy Spirit. And since you do have them, then you are expected to boldly and wisely invest them so that they can grow and thrive. And if you do not, then there will be a reckoning. As with our parable of the talents, verse 30 says, as for this worthless servant, throw him out in the dark where people will wail and grind their teeth. This is certainly nothing any of us want to hear from the Lord on Judgment Day. Let's move on now and read the remainder of Matthew chapter 25. Open your Bibles back up to Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to start reading at verse 31. Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. <clears throat> when the Son of Man comes in His glory, accompanied by all the angels, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be assembled before Him, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. The sheep He will place at His right hand, the goats at His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you whom My Father has blessed, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you from the founding of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you made me your guest. I needed clothes, you provided them. I was sick, you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the people who have done what God wants will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and make you our guest or needing clothes and provide them? When did we see you sick in prison and visit you? The king will say to them, Yes, I tell you that whatever, whenever you did these things for one of the least important of these brothers of mine, you did them for me. Then he will also speak to those on his left, saying, Get away from me, you were cursed. Go off into the fire, prepared for the adversary and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food, thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink, a stranger, and you did not welcome me, needing clothes, you did not give them to me, sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they too will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty, a stranger needing clothes, sicker in prison, and not take care of you? And he will answer them, Yes, I tell you, 
that whenever you refuse to do for the least important of these people, you refuse to do it for me. They will go off to eternal punishment, but those who have done what God wants will go to eternal life. This section of chapter 25 is essentially the end of Christ's final block of teaching. It's not that Yeshua won't tell his disciples other things, but these things will be said and taught within the actions of the final 48 hours of his earthly life. In fact, the first words of Matthew 26 are that when he finished teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives, it was two days before Passover, a day that would change the world forever. Now, the entire nature of the teaching material changes with verse 31, which begins his teaching about Judgment Day. This is not a continuation of the previous parable. It's not a new parable, and it's not an illustration. This is a prophecy of the apocalypse and of the end times. No other gospel records this event or these words. The Jewish Matthew stands alone in it. While that is, while what is said is certainly related in one sense to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, in another way, it's different. Listen to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I kept watching the night visions when I saw coming with the clouds of heaven someone like a son of man. He approached the ancient one and he was led into his presence and to him was given rulership, glory, and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Here in Daniel, we see the Son of Man, Yeshua, arriving in heaven, standing before his Father, and being given power and authority and rulership over God's kingdom on earth, the kingdom of heaven. Yet in Matthew 25, verse 31, when it speaks about the Son of Man coming accompanied by angels, it is said that he comes in his glory, meaning... He already possesses this glory. As opposed to Daniel 7.14, when only after he arrived in heaven was he bestowed with such glory. Therefore, the coming of the Son of Man that this verse mentions is about what Christians call the return of Jesus. Well, next we're told that the Son of Man will sit on his throne. Now, there is disagreement among Bible academics whether this is indicating his heavenly or his earthly throne. Personally, I don't see how it can mean anything other than his throne on earth. As the king over the kingdom of heaven, which upon his return is now being actualized to its fullest extent, this means that Yeshua 
will not be doing his judging of humanity from far away in heaven, but rather locally from his throne room on earth. He will be fully present here in person, although it will be quite a different persona that he will project than the one the church typically prefers to speak about. See, the returning Jesus will be a Jesus of condemnation and wrath, not of mercy and salvation. The period for humanity to be blessed with the gift of salvation has ended, and the fates of all humanity are set in stone. Now, it's prophesied that this is the time for executing the divine justice that has been promised by God for millennia. Now, I suppose as believers we can say, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! This is finally happening. But honestly, for a while this is going to be a time, I think, of personal pain beyond which I'm not sure we're prepared or that we've ever considered or experienced. See, most of us are going to have some of the dearest and closest of family members that we love, that we treasure, condemned to the lake of fire. Some of them that receive that eternal death verdict, it's going to be a shock to us. We'd assumed, maybe we'd only hoped, they were part of the chosen. Spouses, offspring, mothers, fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers. It's going to be a time when our joy of our King's coming is going to be greatly tempered by the overwhelming sadness that accompanies it. And I don't want to rain on your parade. But consider this. The next time you raise your hands to heaven and sing with glee at the thought of Christ's return. In the longer term, it's wonderful. In the immediate, it'll be I don't know. I don't have any words for it. The prophecy of a day of judgment that is coming, not just for Israel, for all who inhabit this planet is sprinkled throughout the ancient prophets. I mean, I just, just going to choose this one passage among many because it offers so much food for thought. Just listen to this. Don't turn to it. Isaiah 66, verses 13 through 20. <clears throat> like someone comforted by his mother, I will comfort you. In Jerusalem, you will be comforted. Your heart will rejoice at the sight. Your bodies will flourish like newly sprouted grass. It will be known that the hand of Adonai is with his servants, but with his enemies, it's his fury. For look, Adonai, God, will come in fire. His chariots will be like 
whirlwind, to render his anger furiously, his rebuke with blazing fire. For Adonai will judge all humanity with fire and with a sword, and those slain by Adonai will be many. Those who consecrate and purify themselves in order to enter the gardens, then follow the one who was already there, eating pig meat, reptiles, and mice, will all be destroyed together, says Adonai. For I know their deeds and their thoughts. The time is coming when I will gather together all nations and languages. They will come and see my glory, and I will give them a sign. I will send some of their survivors to the nations of Tarshish and Pool and Lud, Tubal, Greece, more distant coasts, where they have neither heard of my fame nor seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory in these nations. They will bring all your kinsmen out of all the nations as an offering to Adonai on horses and chariots and wagons, on mules, on camels to my holy mountain. Jerusalem, says Adonai, just as the people of Israel bring themselves their offerings and clean vessels to the house of Adonai. Now, I use this particular passage in order to point out a few things about the Judgment Day scene. Judgment Day will not be quiet like a well-ordered trial in a soundproofed courtroom. The Lord's coming in fury, wrath, fire. He will slay the countless unrighteous. But also notice a second thing. At the same time that his wrath is being poured out, he's comforting the residents of Jerusalem. Another point. In verse 17 through Isaiah, God speaks of people who consecrate and purify themselves in order to enter the gardens. But then these same people who have consecrated and purified themselves to the Lord turn right around and follow someone else doing as they do, which he says includes eating the meeting of pigs, reptiles, and mice. And in doing this, they seem to be renouncing their consecration or perhaps revealing their insincerity. Is this actually talking in one sense about kosher eating, about not consuming things God has prohibited in the law of Moses? Well, of course it is. As with all disobedience, such, bis dis uh, such behavior can be remedied. It's forgivable. However, the implication is you can't claim consecration and devotion because of your outward appearances and then go off and intentionally join those who live a life of unconsecrated, unset-apart people. Then expect mercy on Judgment Day. doesn't work that way. Notice also that the place where the peoples of the nations will be gathered and separated is happening on earth, specifically in the city of Jerusalem, 
So there's no need to doubt as to the what, who, and where of this Judgment Day event of Matthew 25, 31. Verse 32 tells of the well-known end times event of the separation of the sheep from the goats. The scene is of all the people on earth being summoned and then gathered by the Lord in order to be judged. The idea is of a separation of people into two groups, the righteous and the wicked. Believers would say the saved and the unsaved. Notice there is no third option. There's no middle ground. The first words speak of the nations being gathered. Now, since the time of Abraham, the term nations became a word for Gentile nations and Gentile people groups. However, I think at this point in redemption history in the end times, it begins a definite swing back towards the term nations being inclusive of all humans, including Israel, although the context of its use still matters. The Greek word that is most often translated as nations is ethnos. And while this translation is accurate, the word ethnos, it leans more towards the sense of groups of human beings than it does of human governments and national entities as we think of nations today. So the idea is probably not of countries that have clear boundary lines on world maps, but rather of assemblies of people of all kinds from everywhere. That is, no one's excluded. Now, I think this interpretation is validated because next we read of them being separated from one another. So, is it entire nations of people as groups that will be judged either to heaven or hell, or will it be individuals judged one at a time? Now, while the wording of it, it's a bit ambiguous. The way it's phrased and the many principles of the Torah that Yeshua has taught cannot mean that entire nations of people will be lumped together and have their eternity decided upon according to where they live or what their nationality might be. So while we know that the sheep and the goats are metaphors for two different groups of people, some Bible scholars see them as metaphors for national entities. Others see it as for individuals. I think it's the latter. Okay, one other matter needs to be addressed. The sheep and the goats are in no way representative of different ethnicities or races. The issue is about the saved versus the unsaved. Every race and ethnicity will contain some of each. Now we're told that the sheep are separated and they're placed 
at the Son of Man's right hand, the goats at His left. Now understand, biblically speaking, goats are as clean and desired for temple sacrifice as our sheep and are not in ritual Torah law seen as inferior to sheep. Sheep are not good and goats bad. So no comparison of either animal as concerns temple ritual or purity or value is intended here. Further, a shepherd did not separate sheep from goats on the basis of value or worth, but rather because they're two different species. They each have their own needs in kind. And although they are similar in many ways, they are easily recognizable by what? Their appearance and their traits. Why were the sheep given preferred status in this metaphor? Perhaps, since Yeshua is sometimes called the Lamb of God, then he selected the metaphor of the sheep to go to his right hand, the, the hand of goodness and power, where the sheep represent the righteous batch of people. But that's just my speculation. Now, one of the questions I'm often asked is exactly when the resurrection of the dead occurs in the timeline of end times events. When does that happen? Now, while I cannot tell you exactly when that happens, because we're not told exactly, it is assumed in this passage that we're talking about a judgment day that's already occurred. Maybe at the time, the same moment, maybe a little before, this scene of judgment by the Son of Man. You know, I get a similar question as regards when God's wrath gets poured out indiscriminately over the entire earth. And in fact, this question is really the crux of the reason for the various doctrines often labeled pre, post, and mid-tribulation. And while I don't know exactly in the timeline when this happens, I do know that as a divine principle, God does not pour out His wrath upon the good and the wicked. So whenever it comes, you might be relieved to know the good will not be present. But do not confuse the times of great tribulation and the pouring out of God's wrath. These are two different things. I fully expect, sorry to tell you, believers to experience great tribulation as the end draws near. Now, verse 34 is pretty straightforward in that those at Christ's right hand are told to come and be part of the inheritance that God has blessed us with. What's that inheritance? The kingdom of heaven and that He has prepared this for us since the foundation of the world, meaning since creation. God's purpose has never changed throughout the history of the universe. Now, we've discussed 
a few times, God's plan of redemption, or as I call it, redemption history, and how it began at creation. More precisely, the need for redemption arose upon Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Now, the implication in this verse is that while the need for redemption came about at that time, the foreknowledge of it and a plan for it occurred earlier. At about the same time, God spoke the universe into existence. Now, there's also another interesting mention here that's a good topic for discussion. It says that the king will say to those at his right hand, meaning that this king is the same person as the Son of Man and as the great judge who does the separating of the goats and the sheep. Now, the reason for so many titles is that Yeshua will hold many roles. But let's be clear. This is not a matter of the Son replacing the Father. Even as the King, He remains subordinate to the Father, and He is essentially behaving as the Father's agent. In heaven... Yeshua will sit and is sitting right now at the Father's right hand, so to speak. On earth, Christ will sit upon his own throne. Notice how Yeshua says, Come, those whom I have blessed? No. Come, those whom my Father has blessed. It is the Father's kingdom that Jesus rules over. The Father remains as the ultimate authority and power with the Son of Man, Yeshua, Jesus Christ, now relocated to earth. But their unity is in no way compromised due to physical separation or distance between them. Beginning at verse 35 are a list of characteristics that ought to be present and demonstrated in the lives of the righteous. So this is where we'll continue our study of Matthew 25 next time.